delighted to be working with uh, Galway Arts Centre uh, to support the exhibition here through this panel discussion this evening. And um, myself and my colleague Catherine, who is a professional development uh, manager with Create, are um, know Fukushin and have worked with Fukushin over a number of years. And uh, it's for that reason an added delight that we're here uh, this evening and uh, witnessing Fukushin's exhibition in Galway and able to program a discussion around uh, Fukushin's work. Uh, the issues raised, and um, for that reason, um, I'm delighted to have the panel that we have here because I think we have across both arts, culture, grassroots organising, we have uh, different voices that will bring um, a richness to the discussion, and uh, hopefully, then we'll open it up to the floor uh, for um, your comments, uh, questions, etc. Um, the panel will. will um, Everybody will have about five to eight minutes initially to uh, share their thoughts. Well, I'm on eight minutes, but I will speak. We might compromise on six, <laughs> uh, so that you know after about half an hour, so we'll then um, take the various points, open it up for questions and discussion, and we'd like you to to make it um, open. Um, Create, as well as being the National Development Agency for Collaborative Arts, supporting artists who work with communities, feel uh, very strongly that part of our remit is also to encourage debate about the role of arts and civil society, and we do that in a number of ways, supporting panel discussions like this, um, or uh, programming lectures, talks, around the broader issues of the artists and society, cultural democracy. Uh, and how collaborative arts in particular can reflect uh, the political and social uh, um, realities of our, our times. So um, we've programmed the panel discussion here um, looking at Asylum Archive and in its practice Asylum Archive is rooted in fieldwork research through the process of taking photographs of direct provision centres and of found, discarded and abandoned artefacts. It also incorporates video and audio recordings in the body of the work. Uh, the work of Fukushin Najelkovich poses a number of questions on the role of art and the artist and society. It's also a work which demands reflection on broader issues such as political power and the archive. Asylum Archive pulls us up short to consider difficult topics and to remind us, as per Michael Lynch, the archive is never raw or primary because it is always assembled so as to lead late to later investigation in a particular direction. The work of Asylum Archive also requires us to reflect on modes of incarceration and the creation of art within oppressive systems or sites. In what way does the voluntary embedded, involuntary embeddedness of the artist influence what is created? And does this change when the artist is no longer on site? but revisiting themes uh, connected to direct provision. And with this work, um, Vukushin Nijelkovich asks us also to consider direct provision centres not only as sites of incarceration, social inclusion or extreme poverty, but also as sites of collectivity and resistance. And I think that's some of what we'll be looking at in um, the discussion tonight. 
Uh, I just want to briefly introduce the panel um, and but summarise the, uh, the biogs. We have Anthony Hockey, uh, who's been working within, an artist working within the diverse <coughs> art community and academic context for, for more than for, more than 20 years as both an artist and educator. <laughs> and again, creative worked closely with Anthony. He was the recipient of the Arts Council Artist in the Community Scheme Bursary Award uh, 2013 in the uh, area of arts and cultural diversity. His work has been exhibited and collected internationally and is represented in many public and private collections. He's also uh, a lecturer researcher in the School of Media at DIT. And uh, in tandem with the Global Migrant Migration Research Network, has been working with groups of asylum seekers and refugees on various projects, including how to be a model citizen, Citizen uh, in 2013 explored, explored notions of citizenship, migration, and contested spaces. We have Charlotte McIver uh, on my left, a lecturer in English, uh, emphasis in drama, theatre, and performance studies at, the, at NUI uh, Galway, and she teaches the BA and MA programme. She received her PhD in performance studies from the University of California, Berkeley, in 2011. And her research interests include modern and contemporary Irish performance practices research, theatre for social change, interculturalism, migration and performance, gender and sexuality, transnational feminisms and critical race theory. And uh, Charlotte's essay is also on the, um, on the back there. Uh, there are copies of it, uh, her response and a consideration of Bukashin's work uh, if people uh, would like to take a copy. Um, we also are delighted to welcome Meg Morley, um, an artist and independent curator whose projects primarily deal with how specific social and political situations are represented in art and with strategies of artistic resistance that include self-organisation, intervention and collectivism. She's currently working on the idea of the para-institution and this is based in Galway City. The Para Institution is a platform for developing um, and sharing a body of independent curatorial research. And Meg's also uh, um, instigated the Arts-led Archive in 2006, which is available in Nibal in um, NCAB in Dublin. Um, now, Anne, aha. <laughs> Anne Mohall is a lecturer in UCD School of English Drama and film, where she, she is director of the Centre for Gender, Culture and Identities. She is active in grassroots organising against direct provision and the deportation regime, and she's a member of anti-racism, of the anti-racism network. Um, so I'm going to start off, I'd also like to say that when one of my other hats many years ago was also part of um, various different uh, refugee and asylum seeker support uh, groups uh, going back to 1995. So in terms of historical background, I, I remember what it was like before direct provision centres and how the instigation of direct provision centres really created a huge fissure in the types of solidarity groups that there were in Ireland because people were literally put aside and uh, weren't mixing and the, the solidarity groups that existed were um, 
were very much broken up and it's so much uh, harder uh, today to do that, that, the, that solidarity work when people are literally in these places and out of the, out of the way places. Um, so uh, I'll start, uh, Rufus, would you like to just c contextualise for, for us and, and give us your thoughts also on the work here as, and, and, and its place and how you created it? And okay. Hi everyone, thanks for coming. Uh, um, I'm just going to briefly, briefly update you about how the, the notion of asylum archive has started. It really started as, um, started as a local mechanism, if you like, when I was uh, living in one of these centres um, in County Mayo. And then as I was living there, I was just thinking, uh, how do I... Um, how do I spend my day? How do I? How do I? And, and at the end of the day, how how can I do something uh, different here? And as I would have um, um, a BA in photography uh, uh, from from University of Belgrade. So basically, what I did, I started to take photographs uh, of my room, of the surrounding, really of the center, and also started to. Um, uh, do um, a few video interviews with uh, my fellow asylum seekers uh, who I shared the space with and uh, including myself and then and then kind of that that, that was the starting <coughs> moment um, and uh, and from that point I could not perceive or think that um, it's going to grow into what is asylum archive today um, but uh, it's being developed over the period of to, uh, since 2007, so it's um, eight years nearly. Um, um, this is the first um, 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 public visual art display of Salem Archive in, um, in, um, in, 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 this, in the context of the, the White Cube, if you like. Um, uh, Asylum Archive as such, um, and, and going back to the moment when I started to, to, to do the work, it was really, um, Katrina mentioned that, and that's something that I'm writing um, 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 for my research, and it's, um, it's one of the modalities um, uh, of resistance. How do you actually resist that uh, national policy of confinement, if you like? So uh, it was through uh, the process of negotiating belonging, and how does one negotiate belonging? Uh, within uh, sites of incarceration or confinement, etc. Uh, so how how do people? So I, for instance, start to take photographs. Other people did other different things, but that's very important. How do people uh, mobilize themselves and how they uh, create uh, an environment where they can actually uh, live and um, belong, if you like, uh, for a period of. Um, even 13 years or so. Um, um, it, it, it has a different ways of appearances, if you like, the Salem Archive, I think, because it, it's very, it's kind of in, in um, I mean, I, I'm really pleased to see in, in, uh, in Goldmere Center, I think it's working really well, kind of in the gallery. It also does work uh, really well in a, in a kind of on, as, as an online presence. Um, um, but it, it, it can travel from um, kind of um, to the different sites, um, etc. As, as, as such, 
And um, um, the work is not finished really, it's in the process of development. Uh, I, um, I didn't, um, for those eight years, I didn't get the chance to document, even to document all the acquisition centers as they were, I think at some point, 82 spread across the, the country. And um, in a way, it's, um, 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 it's socially engaged work. It's really me as a researcher uh, responding to um, modes of um, uh, confinement or how the state created its requisition. Um, so it does um, have a it does challenge that that structure. Um, um, and um, it's as I said, it's, it's not completed, and, and I think it's got an ongoing project, and, and I um, I will work on that uh, for some time. It's also very um, inclusive, if you like, or trying to be inclusive, as I'm kind of encouraging people who have experienced their provision center or um, who had their provision experience or who are still there to submit their work to the Salim Archive so they can then uh, become part of it. So it's not really an uh, individual art project. So it's moving, shifting from individual art project into more um, um, platform. It's open for dialogue and, and cooperation. And um, uh, um, I did struggle a lot about kind of personalization of the Salim Archive as there is no kind of identity there. But that kind of came through because of um, you know different ways of the, the society does work. So I am its um, curator, if you like, but it's uh, it's more an archive of um, um, as uh, Stuart Hall would say, it's like a never-ending archive. It's very it's very much open um, and um, yeah. So I don't know. I can reflect on other things if you like me to. Um, Katrina, uh, in terms of um, yeah, just uh, and then we're getting yeah. something to come in, okay. you know, yeah, more on the process and um, yeah. also maybe perhaps a better representation or a version of representation. Okay, like <coughs> yeah, the choices um, you've made and, and okay, well, it's um, it's been a made kind of a conscious decision since I did those video interviews when I was living in, 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 in the, one of the centers myself when I would have people uh, and this is just kind of my particular take on things uh, that I had then and that was quite successful kind of work um, if you like um, in terms um, the, it, it got selected for the first prize in Terry Morris but it didn't really sit well with me because I cannot take responsibility for uh, people, uh, the, the, the presentation of people in a, in a public discourse um, in terms that those people are very vulnerable, uh, their lives are all uh, on the margins and what would happen with them in a week, how would they, even if they say if you are allowed to use the image in this or that context, I wouldn't be very comfortable to continue to do that and um, for example, those video interviews that I have, still they're not part of the asylum market, if you like, so people cannot see them anymore. But I don't know um, eight out of, or six out of eight people where they are, and I, I don't have any ways how to get in touch with them. So if you look at the asylum market, there is no physical representations or there is no people, if you like, uh, 
Twitter made a conscious decision not to include people because of their vulnerability, um, etc. But it's um, so what is there is the traces, okay, as you can see on that photograph there. Um, and or you know, we can talk about um, what people have left behind. Um, that's what here. So, and I think it, it kind of really works well. Um, it does kind of capture that uh, uh, notion of uh, invisibility, and um, um, yeah, and also uh, the, the way how do we then as a society treat those people? How do we care, and how do we care, um, and what do we do to uh, uh, possibly change that? Um, so um, yes, then. Um, so we can say that it's daily as uh, Charlotte's writing about it, it's an icon archive of ghosts and um, um, or you know people um, and um, so yeah and then uh, in a way I'm kind of thinking out loud and thinking I'm here since 2006 really so that's kind of uh, um, nine years um, really and uh, um, I didn't know much about Ireland before I came here, so it's the whole thing when scandals came out about the laundries and industrial schools came out. It, it kind of was quite new for me. And then I'm just kind of thinking, um, you know, would direct provision centres uh, and uh, creation of direct provision centres, would that be um, um, a continuation of the course of confinement in Ireland? and? Uh, um, the state made a conscious decision to do that, and they did. Why did they? Why did they do that? So, so that's something that I, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out for myself mainly, um, um, because uh, I think that is issue, or if it's an issue at all, can be dealt uh, in a way more uh, um, um, in, in, in less. Um, in a way more humane, humane way, um, um, because it's quite tragical how those people are treated, and uh, it's not so many uh, left there. It's um, four thousand three hundred, I think, even less. And you would have three centres. You, you you have two at the moment in, in Galway, uh, one in Eglinton and Saltill, and one just opposite the bus stop, uh, Western Way, uh, and um, yeah. So, um, so, I think um, until we were talking earlier about it, and, and Sue was just been talking about uh, invisibility, I know you're just also going to uh, respond to the work uh, mm -hmm. and uh, some of the themes and talk about your own work as sure. well. So, um, taking up from, from that point of, uh, of invisibility and absence and, and, and ghosts, is that the way it speaks to you? Thanks, thank you, um, and congratulations to both the and I think this is a really important exhibition to have in Galway, and fantastic to see so many people here as well, and hopefully you can get involved in the conversation as we go on. I'm going to get at this in a slightly different way, just to maybe reiterate some comments earlier. My presentation is really from, I suppose, a very active activist position of working for more than 10 years, 12 years, with um, people in various states of what I describe as negotiating citizenship. And that means from position of claiming asylum, from refugee status, and everything in between. So 
you know, the complexity of that, we, we don't have time to unpack it, but it might give us an idea of the, the scale. And just a little a slight wide-angle view, if you like, before I get at this, a philosophical point, and then I'm going to come down to some three or four key points that I want to make in relation to them. In, the, in relation to what's at stake when one brings uh, a group of marginalized people together into representation, what, you know, what, what's really at stake here? And, you know, what, what, what is, what is the, the politics of representation around that? And direct provision has been operating in Ireland now since 1999. The site that I worked in mostly was in Mosny, the former Falklands, which has its own unique uh, um, kind of uh, nuance, if you like. Quite strange. Yeah. And um, yeah. I, I spent four years there. As a, um, first of all, the key thing is one must arrive unannounced. Never declare yourself to the state. Never declare yourself to the Department of Justice. And never claim, never look, never look for um, rights to be there, so you cannot be denied. There are ways to do that, and I think that's important. Yeah. I think that's really important that one gets in the way of the world. And I'm going to come back to that notion at the end. It's really important that we make those interventions as citizens, as a, as an act of active citizenship. I think that's really important. Giorgio Gallivan describes these kind of places as states of exception, a permanent spatial arrangement which they remain outside of our democratic structures. They normally engendered at these moments of crisis. So the, you know, the state uses that moment of crisis to create something that you described. You know, these um, direct provision centers happen as, as a kind of temporary solution, but very quickly they become permanent. And those, those sites become um, outside, both inside and outside of the democratic structure. So, Inside, as of, insofar as we can see them, they're usually walled or gated, and we have limited access, so we don't really know what's going on inside. They, they escape those democratic structures, so there's a different set of rules that are going on inside these section centres compared to what's going, out in the going on outside in the democracy, as we understand democracy as, as um, citizens. So the rights that we normally accept as citizens, are, they're, they're temporarily suspended. However, those temporary, temporary moments turn very quickly into three years, five years. The notion of a reception center is a real euphemism. If you think about it, you know, you're supposed to ideally pass through these spaces in six months, right? I know people still living in some of, some of these places after 10 years. Their children have gone through not just second level school, but their children have gone through degree programs and now fully educated. And their parents are still in direct provision. It's unacceptable, I think. And I think uh, Emily O'Reilly gets at this really, um, really important. She made a really important statement in the Irish Times, the outgoing uh, ombudsman. It's really strange. I'm going to refer to her as an ombudsman, although she's a woman, but I think it's the official term. But anyway, she made a really important statement and said, this, you, know, this is, you have to imagine that in the door, at that moment, uh, politicians are congratulating each other because they think they've nailed the issue around industrial schools and magazine laundries. Of course, the real blind spot is, while they're having that conversation, reception centres dotted all over the country, they're still going on. You know? So Emily O'Reilly made this point and said, at some point in the future, um, the Irish state will have to stand up and uh, apologise to the children of asylum seekers for keeping them in these conditions for such lengthy periods of time. And that's a really important point, to bring that into 
the pop, you know, populist domain through newspapers, and I think that was a significant moment. Direct prediction centers are like Michel Foucault describes um, this notion of um, the microphysics of power. You know, we can imagine that the minutiae of our everyday life is controlled. You're told when to eat. You're told when you can wash your clothes. You have to queue up at particular moments to get your basic provisions. You're given a number, and so on. It's really dehumanizing. On top of that, you're given a basic uh, 19 euros a week, which hasn't changed since uh, the opening of reception centers in 1999. So you don't need razor wire fences. You don't need big, huge walls, because people are already in the straight jacket. You know, 19 euros are buying like, three cups of coffee in Temple Bar, right? You know, so in the sense of uh, you know, post-enlightenment control that Foucault talks about, this is it being enacted. This is the everyday kind of life for people. It goes on for years. Um, I want to turn around now and talk about something philosophical in relation to a guiding principle that I've used over the years, and I think Jacques, Jacques Derrida talks about this, the impossibility of hospitality, called an aporia, the idea that how to discuss unequal power relations between the host society and the foreigner, ultimately connected to maintaining the nation state and physical borders. He describes this as the maintenance of borders as, as a violent act, by filtering, choosing, thus excluding and doing violence, injustice, a certain injustice, and even a certain perjury begins right away from the very threshold to the right of hospitality. But hospitality is um, using that in a way to, as a platform, to think about what the responsibility of the citizen is, what the position is in relation to the host country in uh, receiving migrants. And I think the, that needs to be continually unpacked and looked at uh, in relation to how roles and responsibility in relation to wealthier countries, to incoming migrants, uh, can be explored. I want to turn now to just a few points in relation to being an artist and how I think through um, I suppose over those years, key aspects in relation to um, what's happening also in bookish work, I think that's really important. Um, and the first one I want to talk about is agency. How agency is gained through the making of work, through socially engaged art practices, through, through resistance. Agency is also connected to resistance. So the idea that, you know, I don't believe in the idea that people living in direct provision are passive victims. Um, through mobilization, through you know, real democratic structures and discussion, the idea of mobilizing people, so um, a, you know, a regaining of that agency and a re-performing of that agency is really important. And this is the kind of work that I've done together with a group called the Global Migration Research Network. That's just, that's just a, a fiction. It's a fiction to get around this very reductive way of describing uh, migrants. You know, the notion of asylum seeker and refugee have been co-opted by the media. They immediately infer negativity. They immediately infer in a very reductive way that we know what these people are. So the simple act of renaming is a political act in itself. So this group of people, whenever we, we've done public performances together or public events, the Global Migration Research Network, when the audience comes and meet that group of people, it's conferred with a certain kind of uh, um, authority, a certain kind of position in society. That changes everything, and that's really important. Performativity in making um, collaborative artworks is really important. And what I mean by that, um, you mentioned the piece um, 
how to be a model citizen. And this is about power relations. It's about going into democratic structures and upending them, if you like, by very simple means, by slight architectural change, by um, imposing uh, a new imposition where people assume to be in a recessive state of um, you know, so-called asylum seeker, refugee, and so on. Suddenly, they become the border guards. So suddenly, us as citizens are placed on the other side of that. It's an interesting notion, isn't it? What happens when you turn the power relations around? And what changes? And in, that in, in, in those moments of transformation in relational and dialogical art practices, I think that's really important. That the audience, the viewer, is very much implicated and very much part of those works. So I think that's the second point that we might think about in relation to how artists can actually be activists, can make work that can um, challenge um, certain democratic the question of visibility versus invisibility is a really important one as well. Um, people are vulnerable. People have to be protected. Um, at the same time, it's it, you know for me, it's, this is a really complex question because both Bokish <coughs> has made a very clear decision, and I think it's important that he's actively looking at causal traces and causal traces of migration that still exist long after people have left. But I, I, I also argue that sometimes the visibility and the embodied presence of migrants in public spaces is also really important. Because often people close behind gates that we never get to see, or you never have the opportunity to have a conversation with, that's also hugely important. So to enact that is also a political act of uh, resistance. Um, that's something that um, I think is worth talking about. Power relations is embedded in everything. Power relations is central to art practice. Power relations is central to the way that um, negotiations happen between, say, an artist position and somebody who's in a direct provision center. Power relations are about our personal relationships. Power relations are about everything. How they're negotiated are really important. And I would argue that um, it's really important when you're working with groups of people that that is made as visible as possible that it's, it's brought into the conversation in the most direct way possible, even using that terminology. You know, acknowledging that someone like myself, who has been lucky enough to get a good education and um, holds down a good job, is able to have a conversation with people I've worked with in five, ten years, and actually begin to say, look, we understand from the get-go that this is unequal. How do we begin to close that gap? How do we actually um, challenge them in some way, or at least acknowledge it. Finally, I want to just mention very briefly, uh, antagonism is really important. I'm borrowing this phrase from Claire Bishop. But the idea that to make and produce and to bring these very difficult political um, um, situations into the public realm, it's really important that we're not too polite, that we don't self-censor, that we challenge the he hegemony of um, the state. And, and, and the sense that we might um, you know, self-control too much. And I think that level of politeness, we have to be check our own blind spots in relation to that, that you know, we should confront. We should make audiences feel uncomfortable. And we should challenge. To bestow visibility on direct provision, and sometimes those within, is an act of resistance. And that's not least in documenting that now, but more importantly as well, well not more importantly, it is about now, but it's also about the future. It's also about giving future generations the confidence to actually follow those, those um, positions of resistance. 
And finally, John Roberts talks about this in relation to photography. And I'm just going to, I think this is quite useful because it, oh, it closes where I started. The photographer must arrive unannounced and get in the way of the world. He recasts photography as violating powers of disclosure and aesthetic technique as part of a complex social ontology. It exposes the hierarchies, divisions, exclusions, and unequal power relations from within. I think that's important as well. Whatever kind of structures, whatever kind of strategies as artists that we develop, that um, total, if you like, network of social relations should be exposed. And at the same time, the possibility to challenge those kind of uh, long-held notions of democracy is also really important. Thank you. Thank you very much. Plenty to discuss when we open it up and also to be picked up by the other speakers, particularly I'm fascinated by the, the I think rights and the, you know what rights are, are conferred on, on people and how one can um, how this is so uh, fundamental to, to what we're talking about, but also what being subversive. And um, Charlotte, I'd I just uh, like to come to you. I don't know if you want to actually uh, just respond to any of that now or just um, share with us some of the thoughts from, from uh, your essay and from your consideration of these issues that um, all we can pick up on some of that to point us after uh, people have responded to the work here. So if, if that's to yourself, please be happy to do Well, thanks again to the Create and to Fukushima for inviting me to be here. And I have to say it was a, a huge and humbling honor to be asked to write the exhibition note um, that I hope that all understand as a series of conjectures and thoughts that are still evolving and not any kind of a definitive statement on a work that can be entered in from so many ways. Um, and indeed, my own background, as Trina said, I have a PhD in performance studies, but my home first had been in drama and theater studies. So the way that I'm going to approach talking through this today is talking a bit about, I suppose, how I, 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 I conceived or, or thought about representation in um, the exhibition note, and then look briefly at some way about the way in which my approach to that exhibition note and this exhibition is um, certainly grounded in my own background in theater studies and more recent publications around the representation of asylum seekers and refugees in an international context um, within theater and performance. One of the, you know, one of my first immediate responses to the asylum archive um, when I saw it was to think of James Smith's book, Architectures of Containment, um, about the Magdalene Laundries uh, and other related institutions in, in Ireland. And indeed, that, that term, architecture of containment, framed my own um, thoughts and approach to Fukushima's work. And I, I agree with you that in terms of thinking of the continuities between those systems of power then and now um, it helps us to be able to perhaps think about how we might look towards the future that Anthony is talking about. How do we take this moment, a moment of reckoning, and a moment um, still of covering, covering up, pushing over um, and away uh, in, in this country? Um, so in, in my longer work on, on this project, I talk about it in the context of an extension of architectures of containment. To focus in the exhibition note, I've really settled around the ideas of absence and haunting, as I thought, I think also primarily about how representation of, of people and, and of bodies operates in the asylum archive, both on its own terms as, as a piece of work and a piece of work that incorporates both um, you know, visual, uh, sorry, objects as, as well as photographs, um, as well as, as other kinds of media, 
um, but also in terms of, of broader representations of asylum seekers in, in Irish, um, UK, American media, and so on. Um, so I was thinking about the way in which the asylum seekers often end up, um, end up speaking about both the invisibility, um, the lack of a physicality, as Rukashin called it in, in some of his writing, of those behind the doors of the direct provision center, out of the center of town, um, sequestered away on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the hyper-visibility of, of, of subjects um, as called asylum seekers spoken about in the media um, as bogus, as, um, as exploiting the social welfare system, and so on. Um, which Imogen Tyler calls the misrecognition, the misrecognition of asylum seekers. So there's that double burden of, of visibility um, and, and hyper visibility and a misrecognition um, through that hyper visibility um, that this work is, is entering into, I think, and pushing against. And to me, the choice of, of absence as this, as this tactic or, the, or this space that is, that is opened here um, allows us perhaps to look first not at the figure or the idea um, of the asylum seeker, whether recognized or misrecognized, but, but look at the structural um, inequalities of the direct provision centers by looking at, at the living conditions, and not only looking at the living conditions, but through the mapping of the direct provision centers throughout the country in this project. We see it in a networked national context. We see it in a context where institutions that were once used as holiday centers and convents that reappropriated in the service of the system and all of a sudden you know we're not just searching for the asylum seeker um, to identify with to reject to recognize ourselves as or, or whatever in the picture um, but we're looking at this larger um, microphysics of power um, as Anthony said um, so to me you know the ghostly absences in this project uh, perform a haunting critique on the limits of unmediated self-representation of those, uh, the categorized experience of those seeking, those registered asylum seekers within our direct provision system, but all their other national systems as well, which may include incarceration in prison situation um, off the coast of Australia, um, in the <coughs> Island, and, and so on. Now you may be saying to yourself, that Charlotte, why were you even searching for bodies in the first place? Um, and as I said, I came to this perspective, I suppose, first from theater studies in my initial training. And indeed, in Ireland here, the representation of asylum seekers theatrically ha has been a thread or a theme through representations and responses to inward migration from the mid-1990s. And indeed, the first play um, to address both inward migration and asylum seekers is arguably Donald O'Kelly's 1994 Asylum, Asylum, exclamation points. Um, which premiered on the Abbey Theater's Peacock stage. Um, other recent theater studies publication in a more international context include Alison Jeffers' Refugees Theater Performance in Crisis, Performing Global Identities, and Michael Balfour's Refugee Performance Practical Encounter, both of which have come out in the last year and both of which look at both at the politics of asylum seeker and refugee um, representation. Uh, both works know how theatrical projects on this theme, and I think again because of the live body factor, often end up replicating bureaucratic processes and discourses of, of asylum by relying in the works on the, on the giving of testimony, right? That the relation of the story of how one came to be in the place to which they have come end up being at the center of the work, which quote, according to Jeffers, requires the figure of the refugee or asylum seeker to be a heroic survivor in order to gain the sympathy of the audience. So there's this binary of us versus them set up where to witness the work as an audience member is to presume 
that one is other than an asylum seeker and that is sort of that you must be convinced. Um, and I would say that I feel that this trope is repeated in O'Kelly's Asylum Asylum, although perhaps a bit complicated by him leaving <coughs> the action um, with, with the Irish family at the end, but that's a tangent, I suppose. Um, Alison Jeffers um, refers, as a shorthand, and I mentioned this in the note, um, to the bureaucratic, quote, performance uh, of refugeeness, where we, which is how we might characterize or um, group these kinds of testimony sort of performances um, that happen both in, in a theatrical plane and the context of court, everyday life, and so on. So speaking of the challenges of circumventing this in, in the theater, um, Julie Salverson writes of her work in a Canadian context, quote, if our play invites an audience to step into the shoes of the refugee to empathize with her as if, then the refugee becomes an object of spectacle and the audience member and by extension playwright, director, and actors offstage voyeurs. Both are less secure, less able to listen and respond within the encounter. It is possible that both even disappear. But what happens if the character of the refugee turns to encounter the gaze of the actor-playwright audience, demands our presence in the process, and names the illusion of representation? I would say here that Salverson still you know, is presuming a kind of us versus them dynamic in, in the audience versus um, the subject matter on stage, the character, or whether um, an individual actually in the situation of seeking asylum performing. Um, but her point about you know, what, what does it mean to resist the spectacle of bodies to, to move beyond the paradigm that in order for something to be, to do, for us to be able to politically act on it, we need to be able to verify a series of truth claims and in doing so end up reifying the process of the legal system rather contest than contesting it, um, it, it is a really important point and it's something that I feel like the Fukushima's Asylum Archive opens up for us um, through, through the way in which the visual images work resisting the spectacle of bodies and instead, as, as I've argued, I think making direct provision, and not only direct provision, but these layered systems um, of, of Irish institutionality over time speak to each other in the sense of what M. Jackie Alexander refers to as palimpsestic time, time that is neither here nor there, then nor now. Um, so the Asylum Archive um, asks us not to identify um, with anyone in the picture as if, but rather asks us to be filling in gaps of temporality, um, gaps of, of political frameworks that might allow us to, to think about or to deconstruct these systems in different way, um, asking us to lead to a focus on how the system is not only also important in, I think, our own national um, politics, but international politics of, of statecraft and citizenship. So ultimately, the work is an expose, and it's a reframing. It's an expose, certainly, of abject living conditions, but it's also a reframing of these spaces as one in which art can be made and the function in the artist's words, as said earlier by Katrina, as, quote, the sites of collectivity and resistance towards the national policy. Um, in terms of, I suppose, where I'm interested in the conversation, what would be interesting to talk about next or later this evening, as well as if you guys are interested by the, the interviews that you took and then took back and took out of the archive in terms of, of the safety of the circulation of that um, of those of those those testimonies, right? And to me, it was interesting the way in which the videos here and, and that there are testimonies um, in some of the videos. How that then works in, in in relationship to the kind of the the absence of the traces of the visual images um, I've identified. So maybe we can pick that up later. Okay. Thank you very much. <coughs> Loads to think about there, and those to 
Um, so, uh, I mean, I think, you know, we're again, the idea of resistance and, and ways of resisting the system, how the artwork is, is both uh, encouraging us to quest, to quest and, and, and resist is, is, is uh, you know, something that's really powerful through the work. Megs, uh, you know, also the notion of archives, so I'm wondering mm -hmm. if, if indeed um, your thoughts on that, I mean, again, response to this, but in the bigger framework also of how the use of the archive, if you like, and, the, and, yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, perhaps you could speak to that. I think that's, um, you know, I'd like to kind of try and situate the, the practice of Lucasian in a more sort of international context of artists and curators who are working, um, you know, towards um, self-historicization, self-institutional activity as well, um, in multiple contexts uh, across the world, um, but very much in response to the kind of social and political context that they find themselves within as a strategy um, for um, self-empowerment and uh, intervention within uh, what, it, what is actually happening in their context. Um, so I suppose what I'm thinking about, and, and I suppose the, the archive has been um, a kind of an ongoing kind of preoccupation of my own practice as an artist and as a curator as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of, it's really interesting to kind of see it as a strategy uh, of intervention and very, it's a very particular um, decision to create it and call it an archive, I think. So I'm just going to kind of talk through a little bit of that um, and just kind of contextualise it as well with uh, other artists that are working in a similar strategic way. Um, so I'm thinking here of um, the Salih University by Ahmed Agut, who's a Turkish artist who actually uses the, uh, the model or the institutional model of a university um, as a way, and, and, and it's a, again, it's a reinvention and reincarnation of that form um, to, um, to bring visibility and to, um, and to work with asylum seekers uh, to develop um, a kind of an educational platform where um, the experience of uh, what it is to be an asylum seeker is discussed by the, by the asylum seekers themselves who often um, have, have no other sort of professional um, way to, 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 to show, what, you know, show their knowledge, to be able to share their knowledge in the public realm. And so the Saudi University is, is kind of a, is a platform for that and it has moved through multiple um, institutions, particularly art institutions. Um, so um, throughout Europe and um, in, in the last few years, really interesting project. Um, also, I suppose, to put it in line with um, the multiple artists working very much in um, Eastern Europe, um, Middle East and uh, South America, and that particular context of self-historicization um, and the kind of focus on uh, creating archives that very much, um, uh, the, the, I suppose what ties all of those different artists together is this motivation of bringing what is a marginalized, perhaps sometimes an art form or political movement or a particular uh, uh, social issue into, um, into something that is perhaps more of an international context or art context and preserving it. So uh, I'm thinking here as well of Lear Pajowski, uh, the Romanian artist who uh, spent three decades creating an archive of contemporary art right through uh, the communist um, dictatorship 
and um, has, has spent three, three decades of her life put, putting this archive together and then um, continually revisits it uh, show and showing kind of subjective um, in, the, in the exhibition space, creating these sort of uh, timelines um, of, uh, and it's her subjective interpretation of the development of contemporary art in, in, that really fell outside within Romania at that time, outside of the official canon of uh, what was allowed to be the, the official art canon of Romania at the time. And so a really important um, practice and really important artist as well. Um, I suppose um, to, to come back to the idea of uh, the institution and why it's important to say that ar ar an archive is an institutional model. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I'll just read this quote from um, Hal Foster um, from uh, the Archival Impulse. So uh, he says, the museum has been ruined as a coherent system in the public sphere. Uh, that the museum has been ruined in a coherent system and public sphere is generally assumed, not triumphantly profaned or melancholy pondered. And some of these artists suggest other kinds of ordering within the museum and without. In this respect, the orientation of archival art is often more instit institutive than destructive, more legislative than transgressive. Um, and so you know, so why, so why an archive? You know, so why, why would, why is this an appropriate form for bringing visibility to this particular issue? And I think, um, for me, um, the the archive holds a very unique kind of position within our understanding of how history is constructed, how it's mediated. It also has um, a history of uh, of power and control, um, and, and and is also one of the, the kind of older forms of commons. Uh, which I think is really where you're, you're situating this archive um, in. And it, it was interesting to me to see one of the, the video works uh, is released under Creative Commons as well. So, to, you know, for an artist to do that, I mean, that's a, you know, that's a very particular gesture as well to this kind of um, relationship of this body of knowledge that is common for anyone to share and use. Um, so I think that is, it's a very, um, it's a very important gesture um, to make. I think um, as well, just I suppose to talk about how you dealt with the space and how and how the, the it's, it is the kind of um, the playing with the institutional forms of archival display that you're using with the display cases um, and also though the institutional forms of display within art. So we have a mixture of mediums um, that range from the quite institutionally you know, professionally produced, beautifully produced photographs and so on. But then straight away across that we have um, these photocopied uh, transcripts that are pasted directly onto the gallery wall. I think everywhere in the, in the, in the exhibition there are these tensions between mm -hmm. um, uh, the institutional forms of display and ones that are more interventionist and more uh, DIY in, in, its kind of, in its materiality. Um, I think one of the most important uh, aspects of what you know institution, what an institution is, and why it's important from an organisation. On on Friday, um, as part of the symposium that I organised, um, looking at institutions, Mick Wilson, um, towards the end of his presentation, um, spoke about how institutions, as diff as different to organisations, we're talking about time, and we're talking about cross generations not just talking about now, we're talking about creating something that actually 
is 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 forward going right through um, into the next generation and so on and so on. And I think that is why an archive has this particular resonance with um, with the subject matter, in in the sense that what we're saying here is that this archive is going to be here, to and it's a documenting of of this particular issue. Now, not just for now, but also into the future. And I think it's really important from from that perspective as well. Um, so um, that's... You've covered a lot there again, please, to think about it. One thing, the idea of the archive as official record as well. Uh, and record for whom, you know? Uh, so, um, and uh, just to... to um, Pick up on some of this or, or the points uh, or your own thoughts in relation to the work and, and your and the act activism as well. Sure, yeah. I guess I'd like to yeah. pick up particularly on some stuff that Anthony brought up around, I guess, issues around representation, uh, mediation, <coughs> and resistance. And these are things that I've spoken a good bit with Lucasine before. I remember. Um, we were on a conference panel together, myself and Luca Sheen and Mick Byrne, and, and the three of us were talking, he's, he's uh, in the news, he's a postdoc, and he's part of what's called Provisional University. And we were talking afterwards about this representation, the representation, we've both spoken about this, the representation of the asylum seeker, and that the way in which the kind of mediated representation of the asylum seeker that we get particularly through uh, NGO, uh, forms of what we could call communicative labour uh, is the vulnerable, you know what I mean, the vulnerable victim, you know what I mean, or increasingly the victim of trafficking, VOT, uh, traumatised figure, do you know what I mean, and it's through telling this personal individual narrative that the trauma that the individual has experienced becomes manifest and that individual becomes a sort of like a point of of, of um, sympathy and, and kind of pity in a sense, a figure of kind of pity to whom we extend a certain sort of benevolence, okay? Uh, and I guess that we were talking about the problems in that representation. It, it robs the, the kind of way in which that robs people who are seeking asylum of what you call agency, okay? It robs them of a particular, people of a particular kind of agency. And Mick was saying to us, you know, really, there should be a, that this is part of the problem, this kind of form of, 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 of representation. Um, and the kind of, uh, what would you say, the sort of sympathy that it appeals to is also part of the problem in that it serves in many ways to mask what is political. Okay? This is about political structures, not about pity for individual traumatized people. And that's what we're looking at when we look at the direct provision system. We're looking at a structure of power. And we're looking at something like we're saying, that's situated within a global order. And specifically also within a European order of uh, migration management. And it's absolutely really important that that's seen. And that it's also not something that is, this particular kind of management of population is not something that is specific and uh, to, to asylum seekers or to the undocumented. This is something that we can see, kind of you could say in some ways, um, uh, that this figure, the, the, the 
figure of the, the, the migrant, to me, the particularly kind of the migrant who has no status, has become a sort of almost uh, template for an increasing precaritization of populations, to use the Foucauldian language, uh, who were previously uh, much more secure. Okay, do you know what I mean? So we're, we're <coughs> kind of we can see similar structures um, when we look at, for instance, what's happened around the water protests, and we could say that people who are, you know, the people in Jobstown, for instance, very clear in the last few weeks that they live in a particular state of detainability, where they could be picked up at seven in the morning arrested were people who were, you know, who, who violated a, um, an, an exclusion order, can be held in solitary confinement for a month or two. Okay, the people, there are certain people who live in a state of detainability <coughs> who are not actually full citizens. And I'm not saying it's the same thing, but it certainly shares a particular structure of power with people who are forced to live in a state of deportability. And this is what Michel Agier calls um, this kind of system. Okay, you could say the, deport, the direct provision system is a system of open, indefinite detention. And that's what it is. Okay, so you have something like Manus and Nehru. It's a system of closed detention. You know, but this is the one, one of the things that is particularly, uh, we could say, evil, or, this, or how power operates within this, this, the particular Irish manifestation <coughs> of the deportation regime is through the indefinite nature of detention and also through the fact that it is this kind of outsourced model so that we have, but this is very common, you know, throughout the sort of prison industrial complex, um, whereby there are, you know, private, the, 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 the care of asylum seekers is licensed out to independent corporations and companies who then actually make undisclosed profits, okay? We don't know how much is actually there. These contracts are negotiated individually okay, between each management company and the government. So undisclosed amounts and whereby they actually make profits from, from this system of indefinite detention. Okay, so it's really important to see, I think, the ways in which this, this system is very much implicated in other problematic structures of power uh, through which through which the state or Europe or globally the, the kind of global order of things. <sighs> okay, so I just want to talk in that context about representation because I think that aspect of, of of direct provision is something that we really that the archive works hard to present. That this is a structural issue. It's not about the individual narrative. So I would see when you don't have actual people in, in the work, it's not, it's about their vulnerability, but it's also a statement about the fact that this isn't about individuals, this is about a particular structure, you know, and that that's what you're actually trying to emphasise as well. And through the sort of the echoes in the work, you know, we see the centres here, with previous cultures of containment in the Irish context. Uh, now, I just want to turn a little bit to the representation issue, and through that kind of issue around particularly NGO representation of asylum seekers and their relationship to people living in direct provision. <clears throat> so, uh, a, a, an academic called Sarah Dempsey talks about this particular sort of, what she calls communicative labour, 
in, relate, in the relationship particularly between NGOs and migrant populations, but really any marginalised population, we'd say that asylum seekers and the undocumented are particularly precarious uh, in many ways, and particularly prone because of certain sorts of ongoing neo-imperialist dynamics to this kind of mediated representation, whereby the sorts of images and discourses around the asylum seeker that are constructed and produced by advocacy groups and by NGOs in particular has a particular impact on those communities that is not always positive, that can in fact be very damaging. And that the images are actually chosen, the particular forms of representation are chosen for their appeal to particular audience and also for their appeal, very importantly, to funding agencies. Okay? Um, and I think that's part of the vulnerability that Vukasin is talking about when he says that there are no asylum seekers represented in this work because of that history and ongoing kind of process whereby uh, that is how represent the representation of asylum seekers is, is mediated. You know? And so there becomes this very thin line between advocating for asylum seekers and making use of asylum seekers to fulfil the ongoing uh, sort of necessities of keeping, a, uh, keeping an NGO uh, going, Do you know what I mean? financial uh, necessities. Um, so I see what you're doing there and I find it very interesting for that reason. Now, I haven't had a chance because I've just been down from Dublin, but I know uh, the, work, the work of the Asylum Archive very well from the web, so I'm assuming that all of the videos are white people, non-asylum seekers, people who are positioned as advocates in one way or another, whether they're like Joe Moore and Adi, sort of radical left, uh, and working with asylum seekers, or Von East, Lenton, you know, an academic, or Sue Conan and the Refugee Council, which talk about more in questions if you want um, <laughs> but you know, and there, there, there's that lot. so the only spoken narratives in the archive are from white figures, white people who position themselves as advocates in way, or allies or comrades or whatever it might be as against the absence the absence of the actual figure of the asylum seeker I think this is, it's, it's important also now to think about this and I have to think about this in relation to your work in relation to the asylum seeker protests in eight different centres that happened in September and into October this year. <clears throat> Three of these centres protested. Okay, I think this is interesting to think about this in relation to the very static nature of the images, especially presented here as well. You know, so you had protests in Lizzie Woman in Athlone. There was protests in <coughs> Kinsale Road, Crack, okay, down in Cork. And I think, is this Birchwood? And no, that's Birchwood. Birchwood, yeah. And Birchwood in Waterford. So those were actually three of the eight centres where the residents protested. And so what were the responses to the protests? Okay. The responses on the part of the NGOs were extremely ambivalent. Okay. Um, I won't go into this right here, but there was an ambivalent response because the idea of asylum seekers organising for themselves representing themselves as political agents who were actually being controlled or guided by no one is extremely challenging to our ideas about the asylum seeker as this vulnerable victim who we must help, who we must rescue. 
that still seems to keep enduring that particular figure, even within uh, sort of left <coughs> political circles. That that seems to keep going, and I, I would I would say that this is a neo-imperialist kind of dynamic that continues. <coughs> even when you're talking about asylum seekers who are white, who are European, still that kind of strange neo-imperializing, racializing dynamic that happens here. Uh, and then there was also the government's response, okay? And I, I, I mean, I, I, list, I, I was reading back over this, I was working with Saeed uh, uh, Brezhnev, who's uh, a comrade in the Anti-Racism Network, and in kind of doing organizing at the moment, and we're working on an article. <coughs> uh, and we were just kind of looking back over the quotes, you know, that have happened since the protest. Now, the protest happened, um, and when they happened, the, the, what, this, the, the government established a working group on direct provision, uh, and uh, this was to look at reforming the system, how can the system be reformed, and we can talk about more, it's still ongoing, it's due to finish around Easter. So the protests kind of like accelerated the process of setting up the working group. And, um, and so you have this kind of const contrast in the ways in which the protests were talked about and the legitimate political avenue represented by the working group where no current asylum seekers are represented, which happens behind closed doors between NGOs and other technical experts and professional advocates and uh, you know, you know, uh, sort of the civil servants in the Department of Justice and the protests, okay, which are seen on, on the other hand as being somehow illegitimate and undemocratic. Okay? And I think the parallels with what's happened around the water and anti-austerity <coughs> protests in terms of governmental and media discourse are really important. Okay? It's the same kind of dynamic. So you have Reardon saying back in October, he says, I'm concerned about the impact the protests can have on children and other vulnerable people. So you recognise the echoes. Okay? Children and vulnerable people. Uh, you know, he, could have, he, should have, he should have just said women because that's what he means, uh, living in the centres. Other aspects of the protest have been disquieting. These have included the targeting of individuals working in certain direct provision centres and the stopping of people going about their work. Okay, so this refers to the lockouts. This is one of the things that people did in different centres. They locked out the staff. People have limited... We go, go back to the question of agency. People have limited... So what do you do like, to protest, to express your political will in that situation? What do you do to change the dynamic of power? Because that's what the protests did, actually. That's what drove everybody crazy. They changed the dynamic of power, and they broke the hold that fear has over people, because this is how the system works. The state of deportability, this is how it works. It's not just for people in direct provision, but it's particularly so, because in many ways these are holding pens for deportation. But for anybody who is an asylum seeker, like there's 4,000 people who are asylum seekers who don't live in direct provision, and there's many more people who are undocumented who are also living in this particular space where you are ruled by fear. Okay? And that's how power expresses itself, I think. It's, you know, in, in the direct provision situations, it's what, it's what keeps people down, it's what keeps people, keeps people quiet, it's what keeps people from... Uh, from protesting, basically, so that act of actually doing that, locking out staff, taking over the centre, negotiating their own people, their own terms with the staff, refusing to speak to the Refugee Council or allowing them to mediate, refusing to speak to RIA, 
This was really powerful stuff. And this is how it's responded to at a government level, you know? And so you have the same thing happening with the representative from Ria who went to Kinsale Road around the same time as O'Riordan made that speech. And he says the same thing. He says, to have protests going on at the same time as this other process, meaning the working group, uh, is actually counterproductive, incredibly counterproductive. You have to trust the system because it's faceless, locked away, a legitimate political system. Okay. He goes on to defend the staff in the centre, saying that they're really all good people who are nothing but concerned for the residents. Uh, yes, but he, he absolutely denies this. And he's also very conscious of the fact here that there's children in the centre, vulnerable women in this centre. So he's concerned about the vulnerable women and children, which we will recognise from the whole discourse around trafficking that has emerged uh, in relation to illegal immigration as well. So the vulnerable women and children who must be protected from these dreadful, barbaric, uh, out-of-control protesters or men or whatever it might be. Okay, so the idea that it's not now the direct provision system that is actually abusing these children and tarnishing their present and future, but rather it's actually the protesters, their own families mostly, their mothers and their fathers and the people that care for them, they are the ones who are endangering these children through actually trying to agitate for the fact that these people are human and and yet we, they're being kept in a state where they have no rights. I think I better just finish there, but I don't, how, how do we relate this back to your work? I guess one thing I would say is that you did put in a new section called Resistance when those protests were happening. And so I wonder about the relationship between specifically the depiction of the centres themselves and that kind of idea of resistance where there are actually bodies, resisting bodies, and who, who make themselves visible, and who actually claim or try, reclaim a certain agency and power through asserting that visibility on their own terms. Um, yeah, that's it. Do you want to respond to that, Christian, or are you... But there's so many things I would like yeah. to respond to. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, yeah. At the moment, what, what I was suggesting, and it kind of didn't work out, and I still don't know why it didn't work out, I was suggesting that because I can't go there, right, physically, so people who are there, just take the photographs, okay? It is your space, in a way, okay? And just send it to me, and I'll upload it, and it's just your... Um, um, resistant uh, part, yeah, it's, it's your, your page if you like, uh, you know. But I just had three, four, five, you know. But anyway, so it, it's kind of difficult, you know. Uh, but it's I entirely agree uh, with you, Camilla, was saying that it, it's a crucial moment uh, in the history of direct provision, if you like, the process, absolutely crucial moment. It, can I just um, the the working group was set up. Is partly because of the protest. Is that no. right, or was it, the, was it before then? No, no, it was already. <laughs> in, you know, it was already. It was there was there, was, yeah. there had been a decision yeah. to set up a working group to look into to look into direct provision yeah. and possible yeah. ways of reforming direct provision. But it, yeah. the process was 
definitely accelerated by the protests that happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, it has yeah. definitely influenced the way in which the work is yeah. perceived. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but that is problematic. I think it's already a neoliberal agenda. The working in, group, insofar as we we enter these spaces and you know, quote unquote, some are better than others, some are disgusting, some are okay. So what does that mean? What did, you know, mm -hmm. the acceptability mm -hmm. that structurally something seems to be. You know, what is comfortable enough? What is uh, provisional? But I mean, it's, it's also it misses the point. Yeah, yeah. 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 Reforming, I mean, like that is also a nonsense because it's actually, it still legitimizes the idea exactly. of the system. So, you know, um, the, the, just, um, just to, before we open it up, but I would like to just talk. I have worked for NGOs in the past, and I've also, you know, obviously worked as an advocate for many years, not, without, not in an NGO. NG, and so I've looked at both ways of this working, and I think it was, uh, it, it always struck me, and it has accelerated this. Uh, was it you talking about the visual dramaturgy of the humanitarian campaigns? And, uh, you know, so uh, the way, you know, the, bluntly, the more pitiful uh, the image, uh, the more that is, you know, to, supposed to tug at the heartstrings, you know, and yet, uh, again, that of course takes away completely from the agency and it, 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 it completely distances in fact and, and, and creates a, 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 a superior or a superior dynamic. I mean, I, I, for myself, a lot of this stuff actually, kind of the modern NGO could come even from missionary work mm -hmm. and, 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 and tropes that actually were formerly missionary. There are elements of that still left in some of this, in some of the, the NGOs, but it, it certainly, as you say, that you know the, the the to contrast what Fukushima has done then with the the, the, the sort of the, the visual images of humanitarian campaigns is very uh, stark and how different the, the <coughs> relations are and what those images are supposed to do as well, you know, because they're, they're, and they're not, I don't think, about solidarity, you know, they're not about political action together, they're much more about uh, a superior role, aren't they, that, you know, um, anyway, uh, the other, the notion of the way that this, that any art is resistance within extreme, you know, uh, scenarios, that, you know, poems from torture camps or the Warsaw Diaries or, you know, uh, you know, the continuum of, of resistance, which is about asserting yourself as a human being, you know, even uh, even at the point of uh, sure extinction, for instance, I mean, in, in the ghettos and uh, etc. I think this notion of of it's not just a political resistance; it's also a resistance to uh, say oppressive dynamics that even. Well, I think I think, I think Primo Levi really gets at that when he was talking about his position. You know, there's, there's this real moment where he's describing a confrontation with SS Nazi guards. And that this, this uh, guard says to him, look, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe or what you think, because we're going to eradicate your memory, we're going to eradicate your, you know, your presence on this earth, we're going to eradicate every, every trace that you've ever been here. Yeah. And of yeah. course, what's really important at those vulnerable moments is that people do, in so yes. many ways, express yeah. resistance, yes. either yeah. through yeah. physical yeah. embodiment, yeah. Through, through kind of life and death situations yeah. that they, they decide that and through and, and, and narrative and so yeah. that they decided you know it is important at that moment to through um you know a particular moment to articulate that and 
that's that you know that, that's quite a complex thing and it's quite far-reaching I think but the decision is made from I think you were talking about this as well the idea that um, that a group of people decide to protest on their own terms yes. yeah. and, and, and yeah. you know no. and, and they go off script which is fantastic yeah. you know and, and suddenly you know the NGOs and the yeah. state don't know how to deal with them. But that's so interesting because technically, if that, you know, given the remit, everybody, you know, there should be everybody rolling in behind and not, you know, not having enough. And I mean, you know, I know the terrain, so but it doesn't. But it's 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 a way of exposing as well, isn't it? Is it you know, instead of saying actually, if we're advocates and allies, then then you know, th we should be totally supporting this. You know, I mean, and uh, and that's it. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank everybody for uh, extraordinary, generous sharing and <coughs> complexity of ideas across everything uh, that, that we've said this evening. Uh, and it's in honour of, of uh, the, the way Book Machine's workshops has touched us and, and uh, made us reflect uh, as a more deeply on all these issues. Would people, would you like to ask a question, comment on, on any of the points or uh yeah it's just really interesting the it seems to be repeating again and again like this uh, distinction you know, like uh, the you know the, the protesters were endangering you know like order the, the kind of the world it's always the kind of the deserving poor that are mm -hmm. being separated you know divided and because like i mean like obviously that the, there is the <coughs> the water protest as well where it's kind of like there is a good protester, there is a bad protester. Mm -hmm. You have to kind of select between them. Mm -hmm. Or again, like the kind of the good pro-country, -pro like Ireland, that is doing well and hardworking, and the bad pro-country, like Greece, obviously. Uh, you know, so it's always you separate, and you never, there is no common cause because like there is a good one and the bad one, and they, you keep them fighting together. And like that, you can be sure you can continue. I mean, like there was kind of counter strategy in the on Friday. Fiona was made. Um, Presentation and she was she was presenting uh, like with the water protest and how they've been using the grotesque <coughs> and images and kind of turning kind of in ridiculous figure of power mm. as a counter strategy to avoid this kind of representation of uh, this kind of splits and uh, so they might be you know like again it's kind of like with using a kind of organizing your own image organizing your own uh, your own type of representation that kind of seems to be the only way to kind of counter this. Scenarios, these kind of I think that's an important point because um, it's touched on here as well that this isn't individual nationalism. This is, a, you know, coming back to the question of migration. This is a pan-European agreement. Mm -hmm. Don't believe that it's not unspoken. Yeah. Don't believe that there aren't think tanks actually deciding those kind of general neoliberal policies. Mm -hmm. A good example, just a quick example, uh, last year in um, Italy, and this this pan-European organisation called Frontex. Basically, their job was to search and rescue um, thousands of people who were you know, making journeys from uh, North Africa towards Europe. Um, they downscaled that last year, and um, the result, you know, so far this year, there's already 600 people who've just drowned. Mm -hmm. well, the Italians yeah. said them, actually. The Italians, basically, yeah. 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 never yeah. European folks. They, they changed from an initial yes. kind of rescue policy to yeah, one of drawing yeah. back, yeah. and the, like, the second policy just was constantly. actually just yeah. to try to push people back towards the borders. But you know, the question isn't really the question isn't really answered. Responsibility becomes devolved. The point I'm making is this is a pan-European decision. It's not just Ireland. Yeah. We can't yeah. just think about yeah. Ireland in isolation. Yeah. That's yeah. important. I, think. Yeah. I, I just uh, I just witnessed that in Sicily actually with 
the head of the equivalent of the HSC came to visit a, uh, a uh, rehabilitation project um, that, that, that they fund with his, uh, with his politicians around him. And uh, he showed us an image of Lampedusa, the yeah, island yeah, of yeah. Sicily. Um, and he showed us an image of it looking beautiful. <coughs> and about four or five images of it looking beautiful. And then after the meal, he then showed us a film footage of him saving people uh, who had been uh, struggling to, to live, and 365 people died, I think. But it was a, like a, C, a copy of a CNN report with an overdub of an American accent with him being interviewed as a heroic figure uh, with cutting away to images of all the, the bodies lined up against the shore and that they found this young girl who was alive and he carried her here and I, I just thought it was really cynical but it was also a real example of not only the, the, the sort of the tropes of the media around the heroicism of saving at the same time cleaning up the island from the issues of migration and refugees and asylum seekers requiring their support and I think it was completely confused and I was really overwhelmed by that because um, because in that state and, and that person as a political representation um, they were they were putting themselves in the picture it was a different kind of representation again mm -hmm. from what the other elements of representation were and um, once again the, 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 were the victims of this circumstance but somehow, it was the, the state that, that was the saviour. And meanwhile, 365 years <coughs> It was just really shocking. Just a, a couple of things. Um, from a, a campaigning angle, um, I really, really admire the exhibition that's here. Um, but I think there's a, there's a twin, just in terms of campaigning for a better change, there's a twin to this. This is demonstrating the structure, okay? And all of our campaigning methods we look at all the time, like we've been talking about, they tend to victimize or personalize the person who suffers the abuse. Whereas if we went back to all of the most successful grassroots campaign, a lot of the ways they often work is by, in terms of reflection, reflecting that and personalizing the person who is the power holder. So rather than having yeah. the individual asylum seeker, it would be about nothing but Aidan or Reardon for the next while. So it would be about the structure yes. and then nothing but Aidan or Reardon. So it would be posters of Aidan going, help Aidan understand this, you know? And I mean, that's, it's, it's an empowering thing to do, but it's also, it works. Um, and the reason it, it works, even though you're dealing with a big structure and everything like that, it's very difficult for people to wriggle out from that when it's, you know, if you, uh, it's Saul Alinsky who I'm talking about. He's a grassroots organizer from uh, the United States and he was absolutely unethical in all respects. He just wanted to win. So th these were very often his tactics, was going, we'll personalise it. If you can't get at him, kidnap his children. Um, no, he meant that metaphorically in terms of you're not actually taking anyone's children. But if you can't get at the person who has power, find who has power over him and get at them. And I think, think that in some ways that, that this, this, this and the uh, asylum seekers' protests and all of those, they've opened up a space for this to happen into, in, but perhaps the next space is to reflect that, to make, to make the... Uh, people who are the focus of attention or the focus of people's attention being those who are holding the power. Now, just in terms of a, on a European level, we're working with a big, you know, we're working with a big neoliberal scale, but we can make it as uncomfortable as possible for whoever it is that has to make those decisions here. 
Um, and I, I, that's, that's just from a campaigning point of view. From a representation point of view, there was a really awful, awful humour, but a marvellously exact cartoon from The Onion. You know The Onion, the satirical uh, cartoon? And it was the cover of a magazine, and it was, please give us a dollar a day so we can keep photographing this child. And it was a, a, you know, it was a, it was a drawing, luckily enough, but it was a drawing of a, th the things we've come to expect. But it was just a marvelous little <coughs> flip of that. So I think sometimes humour and satire can, can help us just in terms of, in terms of the arts on that. Um, there's one more thing I wanted to say, and I can't remember what it was exactly. So I'll leave it. Yeah. That's old age kicking in. <laughs> I have a question. Sorry, just for Bukashin, in relation to. Your choices, because um, the, the 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 subject matter is so weighty and so vital and so significant that your skill as an artist has come into play in relation to this being the first time you've had an exhibition in a space like this in Ireland, um, and you're coming at this from a dual role around representation. And I just really wanted to ask you a question about how you made some choices that you've made for this work. If there's anything that you remember or that sticks with you about making those choices in relation to your practice as an artist. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I think um, one of the two important things is, is, is really in this work I'm trying not to... Uh, aestheticize or romanticize the subject. Okay, so that's very important. So it's kind of coming from documentary photography, uh, really, um, um, notion of taking the object uh, as it is, right? So that's it. So if I would go, uh, we talked about the centers that are there. So I would go to a center and I would take um, maybe 100 photographs, okay, or 200 photographs of a center. And then I would just come home and look at the, the photographs and then decide which one I think they are the best representations for the uh, online presence, if you like. Okay? And that would be maybe slightly different it would be um, um, if I would print a photograph, okay? but not necessarily. But for me it's important to, um, to see the building, if you like. Okay, and uh, surrounding of the building that, uh, or, or the, 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 the environment around. Um, so it's basically really looking with your eyes and pressing the button, and it's not, a, it's not any mystery, if you like, so it's basically as simple as that, really. But I, I presume it's coming from the notion of me practicing as a visual artist for um, over a decade, if you like, so, yeah. There's a particular right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a question here. Sorry. Yeah, well, well you know, uh, I, I, I agree with what has been said. And I think, uh, like, I think you were sp uh, uh, widening the, <coughs> the questions. And I think it's important to widen uh, the question. First of all, I hate this term, uh, asylum seekers. I think we don't know why, who are the people who are coming. Some are coming, they are just displaced. It could happen to us and us people can be displaced in Ireland as well. For me, it's immigration reversed. So the Irish would be very sensible to that uh, plea because it's, it's not a plea, but it's a, you know, the right of people to live as a <coughs> citizen anywhere in the world. And uh, I think uh, it's just very important to realize that uh, 
it's really, it is linked to globalization uh, everywhere, what is happening everywhere, neoliberalism and so on. And it's only a small picture of a wider uh, state of revolution and crisis nowadays. I think it's important to realize that. I always have uh, as well a problem when uh, we speak of the vulnerable, blah, 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 blah. Because I think if everybody, all this policy of the vulnerable, the, uh, you know, political uh, policies about the vulnerable, uh, the old, the young, the this and that, uh, has been invented by government uh, because there was no equality and citizenship and because the democracy process doesn't work as it is. So basically, I always really hate to categorize people. The other thing is that, but you have to say that there are people <coughs> coming here and they are placed in those places. And to me, it looks like a state being completely taken by surprise by the amount of people coming and don't, doesn't know what to do. There are no provision for those people, okay. So, like there are no provision for other things, like the water crisis or everything. Everything is linked together, we have to realize. So they are part of us and we are part of them, you know. So basically, I, uh, uh, I don't know, I just feel that uh, a lot of more has to be uh, thought about, about uh, <coughs> our condition. And, you know, uh, it's not, what they have, they have rights, like we have rights. We all have rights. And those rights are to be uh, exerted, you know, I mean, in certain ways. I don't know, I just find, uh, I can't, I, I had so many things to say, and <laughs> then it go, going, uh, I forgot about, uh, you know, but I had good arguments, but then, uh, it's just that I feel, yeah, the, when you save the vulnerable and the, the, you know, when you categorize people, you have NGO working with them, even if you work as an artist, I am afraid of uh, instrumentalization of people. And in fact, what you want to do is empower people, give them the tool for them to do their own thing. That's what you want to do. And I wonder, you know, uh, as well, is there things that you, uh, projects that can be positively done, like uh, a trust to do a kind of village, create a village where people would, uh, you know, I don't know. A kind of utopic uh, project. Mm -hmm. information is there, you know, mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. trying to, for other people to 
in some places. Some places it was more successful than others, where they had stronger, more organized and politically experienced people who were living in the centers. But say, someone like Kinsale Road, <coughs> they actually opened the center up um, to people in the local community. People came, out, came to the center, they had a party there during the lockout, <laughs> or to end the lockout, they actually, you know what I mean, where the people came in from around the around Kinsale area, from Cork, like, and uh, people came in playing music, you know what I mean, this sort of, this, so they just, it was a specific thing that they did, it was like, we're going to open up the centre, like, and they've had a couple of those things there since, and also, you know, people, local people coming and bringing uh, food and helping to my kids and stuff like that during the protests itself. And I guess, and you know, or somewhere like some of the other centres as well, where they had, like, they've developed very strong relations with local churches. And, you know, there's this, I think that that's the thing, was what you're talking about, like dispersal, system of dispersal and confinement in, in centres is, was also, it, it's about, there were, what do we do with all these people yeah. arriving? But that this suggested itself as the. There's also when people gather, having yeah, a space yeah. where they can actually gather, and it was very specifically to break up any any kind of resistance, really, or community. And also, uh, the words integration and intercultural, these are problematic words, do you know what I mean? That unfortunately are imported from a governmental kind of context mm -hmm. to replace what happens when people aren't ghettoized. Uh, do you mean apart from each other in the way that the direct provision and dispersal system does? So I think what you're talking about, I'm talking about it in different terms to you, mm. but isn't that really what it is? It's about when people actually engage in real interrelations, like live together. And, and live in some the difficulty way. of being human and living together. So it's like I think that Seth Bill was saying, how do you also begin to um, break down the ideologies that are inside of us that we have actually habituated towards? So fear, for example, um, and how that keeps people separate. <coughs> so, for example, in the asylum process, you are not allowed to be a whole person with many, many, many aspects, because all of your aspects are up for description by a by, uh, system that has power over you. And so this whole place of like looking at systems that are power heavy, that are power over, so they do not allow, they do not allow, allow for a connection between people that's so horizontal. And, and, and then that is also within us. We have been educated in these systems and are continuously by the media. So, um, yeah, it's just like, how do we have the mobility? precarity is, is one that we're all living in, actually. Particularly in the arts, we're, we're completely living in precarious uh, kind of state control and it's a way of governing, it's a way of controlling. <coughs> getting a kind of determination to get really involved, do you know what I mean, and in a particular kind of grassroots level, like, and 
I guess I want to, I wonder, what, how did you make the choice of what to frame and what not to frame? Yeah. You know what I mean? So the, the upstairs, it's very powerful, you know, the plaques on the wall yeah. for all yeah. of the oh, people yeah. who yeah. died in the yeah. Red Provision, and then the, the medical scripts and, you know what I mean, the registers from the centres, and mm. I guess, yeah. I don't know what I'm asking, but why, no, why, why did yeah. you choose these particular, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think um, um, I think what happened in this particular case is that I knew that I'm going to have an exhibition here uh, um, six or seven or eight months in advance. I was able to think out through, okay, and without having a substantial funding to devise the show, very minimal funding really, I made it possible because I was thinking it, and if you look at the brass plates, like those brass plates had the names at the beginning of the work, right? And then at, at some point, a few, few months ago, I said, like, why names really? First of all, I can find only six names. The career is keeping the, the names, the cause of the deaths hidden from the public view. So, okay, so let's just take the names out. And Anthony commented today, it's a completely different work, right? Yeah. And it, it, yeah. it, it has really worked for me. It's more powerful. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And, and then yeah. when it comes to the vaccine sheets, in, in a way, like, I mean, hold on a second. I actually stayed in that center over there when I came to Ireland first. It's still McCood, it's still Oregon. And that's where I found those sheets. So I was there in 2006. I went there in 2013 or 14. And then at the back of the building, you know, a, a, a pile, you know, under the leaves, really buried in the ground nearly, a bunch of vaccine sheets, right? So I just took them out, okay? And, and what does that represent really? So in a way, the way that I found them, I tried to replicate that or to position that within the gallery, okay? Um, similar things with the kind of plastic bag, you know, the hospital belonging and, and the shoelaces, that kind of... Uh, visibility, invisibility, uh, you know, what, what does that mean, really, you know? Um, yeah, and I can go on and on, really, about that, but it's... Um, but are these uh, <coughs> sort of fragments? Yeah, the, these are these, yeah, these it's very kind of... Um, I, 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 um, the title for this work, really, I found that in, 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 in Kilchima, um, which was actually the crucial departure point for asylum Morocco, as there was a centre there that they had closed. So I used to bring my daughter there, because that was the only, this is fascinating, right? In, in Hall Pilchima, okay, there is a no free playground, right? But when the centre closed, okay, when the asylum seekers left, there was a playground there, and nobody knew about that, okay? So I used to bring Kortje at the time, she was <laughs> to, into playgrounds, so she was playing there while I was doing the work, kind of constant work, really. And I found that, um, there and then it was really that notion. Okay, I found this talking ball. Okay, but hold on a second. Who did it belong to? What had had happened with the child that owned the ball? Yeah. All right. Yeah. So in a way, it's kind of you can challenge this notion of of of, of, of museum of museology. Yeah. So that it, uh, and at the end of the day, what um um yeah. So I'll finish there. Uh, in, so. in the Holocaust Museum in in Berlin. You know the whole all the talk about the layout and everything. But there, there, when I was there a couple of years ago, they had an exhibit, you know, a corridor where they had little objects and the photographs <coughs> of the person. And the thing that I have never ever forgotten is one of these cases with a little tube or a little box with odol on it. It's tooth powder, a kind of a 
uh, for better breath or whatever it is, right? You know? And you kind of think to yourself, like somebody, the whole notion of somebody having this in their bag in their case when they're, you know, they put on a train to go to a concentration camp, the whole humanity and hope and foolishness and, 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 and naivety and so many different things and, and poignant trace that this was left of a person who thought they're going somewhere where the niceties of your teeth and your, you know, will be possible, the remnants of, of, of yeah. your, your, your lineage. Well, in a similar way, I think, think these pieces are really important because um, they are about a personal journey. They're also assigned by causation, if you like, the, the physicality, the, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the, the being there, even, yeah. even the metaphor of movement yeah. is right there with those lasers. Yeah. There's lots of kind of, you know, very carefully thought out imagery there, I think, and that, you know, it's quite, obviously, um, there's not a lot there, but I think um, because, you know, the warm close to the body, and the, the physical impact of just, you know, physically walking along, equally, you know, the relationship between that object and the text with the time is really important because it points towards um, it's, it points towards violence. It points towards violence in the state in some ways. It points towards um, you know a position of um, empowerment as well. I mean, we, we shouldn't forget that you know, and we you know we haven't really dwelt on it. I think it's probably important not to. But the unique position that you hold is that you're a mighty artist as well. So the idea that one is um, speaking from within from having kind of experienced spatially, physically, psychologically, these spaces is also, you know, for me or the media, you know, for me it's as much about you as curator. So if, if a sign applied, you know, apart from apart from this initial embodiment in a gallery space, it's also important that it becomes um, you know Mike spoke about the archive itself, it's crucially important that that, that presence uh, and that notion of uh, history, if you like, you know, Pierre Nora speaks about the way that history, um, even a community, uh, community representation of history is deliberately demolished. It's deliberately um, swept aside in favour of the state um, maintaining a particular political and historical position. The archive is also important from that point of view that one can challenge, one can politicise, one can actually bring forth both the personal. You know, so moving from the personal to the general, I think, you know, that, that's also a unique um, attribute of this exhibition. That's, that's something important. I wanted to ask. Where, where is there a final home for this archive? Yeah. You know, I mean, is there a strategic place that this can really intervene into kind of a, a knowledge system? Like, yeah. Yeah. When I was doing MA at the time, uh, 2011, I thought that the um, a home, a home, sorry, so a home for archive mm -hmm. or asylum archive would be in one of the closed recognition centers and that mm -hmm. it would be there. Okay. Spoke with Alice Smith about that yes. and kind of, you know, that would be another kind of confinement, wouldn't it, you know? So do we need yeah. that? Now, it would be interesting to have a museum, maybe, maybe not, of 
this particular time of incarceration in yeah. society, yeah. but that can be negotiated differently. I think a really happy yeah. the way it works yeah. on the website or as an online presence. And then and it's yeah. it kind of it kind of travels from there to let's say so I'm doing a PhD now, so it, it goes there, okay? Or <laughs> yeah, so yeah. that's kind of working. And then in the gallery or a publication conference. Yeah, it just travels to different places, and it's this flux kind of. So it's kind but, of but also, the, you know, in an interesting way, if we, if we accept that all artworks are contingent and with the passage of time, they mean different things at different times. And as you describe your personal journey, allied with your research, if you like, you're, you know, so you're 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 creating a discourse around this. I mean, you don't know what that discourse is really. So bodies of knowledge that flow from this archive, I think. Is something that's that's really your challenge in a way, you know, to fully articulate and to fully be able to, um, you know, circulate that body of knowledge. I think that, in, you know, in two three years time, I think you you have that. Answer. You know, the re I, I guess that's one of the reasons that you're studying a PhD. It's such a you know intense uh, period of study for that you know, that time. Nobody can answer that question. It's a research question. Yes, the story of the clock. Why 33? Uh, was it found? What is the story of the clock? Yeah, the clock was found in one of the centers, um, a recreation center in, in Gardner Street, yeah. uh, which is kind of city center of Dublin. Yeah. And it, it was a center that operated. From 1990 or 2001, I think closed in 2011. So I actually stayed there three times myself. Uh, so I kind of would know the center. But then I got somehow the keys to get in the building, um, and uh, from the um, from the letting agency, if you like, for the um, uh, yeah. So I went in, and then uh, in the basement. Uh, there was um, there was an area where there was like playroom, if you like. So it, it was just there. So you know, there we can speculate that you know, um, but I just don't know what. I don't know the story. I could think that it may be um, you know um, an artwork that's been created, inspired by a workshop. Maybe not. You know, so we can yeah. just think. But I don't know. Uh, so it's just kind of there, and it's kind of again kind of speaks of that kind of um, time, no time, what time really is, and okay. yeah, okay. is there a time? So yeah. and such. Yeah. Go, going back to the question of archives, I mean, in the conversation tonight, what has become clearer and clearer is there's sort of archives within archives within archives, right? Mm -hmm. The project is a curated archive, right? Mm -hmm. There are certain images that you selectively put up online <coughs> that are in the exhibition, but are not. Images that are online and not in the exhibition. There's images that you've there's interviews that you've taken out of the work that you have done. And I suppose you know we're talking about you not being sure where the work is going to end up. But I suppose where it, like which one is the archive, or is it that there are are multiple or mediated versions of the archive that exist in different places? Yeah, I think it's, I think that that would be the the closest description. Um, kind of multiple existence of an archive. I think that's the clo closest um, um, description that I can think of, really. Mm. Um, in a way, started kind of thinking, really, saying, 
I really have to do this because if I don't do this, I don't know. Um, will, it, it, will other people yeah. do it, right? Mm -hmm. So it was that kind of thing. Okay, yeah. so that's how it started, and then just kind of went. Um, we, I, I'd like to add another element to that. We could think of um, we could think of this archive in, in the way that Stuart Hall considers the living archives, yeah. but archives and the way that Walter Benjamin thinks of history is continuous. Yeah. But history isn't about reading in you know in that long distance viewpoint. History is about evolution. History is about what's what's presenting itself now. It's <coughs> so that the living archive is vital and political mm. and continually extracted. It's continually appearing and disappearing at the same time. Mm. So therefore that you know it can't be fixed. Mm. So at particular historical moments you can draw I, I think this is the importance of curation in a moment. Mm. That you at particular key moments and um, mm. Benjamin talks about this as well in relation to history as things flash up in a moment of danger. Mm -hmm. So you draw on something, the meaning of that becomes attached through that particular moment in society. Mm -hmm. That changes, it's always changing. I think, I think that's, that, that's the value in a mm -hmm. sense. And somehow it needs to be continually mediated for me to, to, um, to um, continue that notion of the living archive to, to make it vital. Mm -hmm. That actually ties in with the question I had around opening it up to other uh, images. Specifically, because you said that, that that section was it called resistance or yeah. there's an opportunity, mm. um, but I and I I wondered whether you've ever been in a position where someone has offered you uh, an image or an object or a particular experience <coughs> that you may have been in a difficult decision around uh, curatorial or otherwise as to whether how how it related mm. to the archive that you have developed and created and researched. And it's the curatorial question always, yes. um, uh, how to respond to that. Now, if, if it's a particular free space, mm -hmm. um, I, I just wondered whether you thought about how you might see that space. Yeah, it's, it's actually existing only through as an online presence. And if you go to a cyber market, you will see a contributory page, okay? And then you will see, okay, the huge disparity between this kind of work and that work, okay? But we cannot um, say which one is better, really. I think so, okay? We can say, you know, aesthetically, maybe, okay? Or artistically, if you like. But importance, I don't know. Because for me, it's very interesting to have a photograph of a guy who lived in that hostel over there from 2006 at 5 p.m. Right? I think that's very important to have it there um, because uh, only he knows what was it like for mm -hmm. him to be there and what was going on in his head and how that can be, you know. Um, but it's, that's, that's kind of completely different. Um, it, it can go into really different work, if you like. So that would then include meeting with people, right? Spending more and more time with that, which I may do in the time because I just see this as an ongoing project. And that may be something that I will focus on to in in the next while, as to establish the connection more really with people. Because I am quite, um, since I have left, I have few, few friends, and that's all. Really, I'm quite removed from the centers. I don't go there anymore. I, I don't go inside anymore, really. Um, yeah, actually, the question was not even so much the better. Better or yeah, quality yeah. Or, or aesthetic or anything. It's, it's more to do yeah. with the risk because you know what someone else has experienced, mm. as has been spoken about today, mm. can encompass things that mm. 
you might feel uh, challenge your uh, responsibility of housing something on the internet, true, on the web. True, yeah. and, and that's the question that I was kind of it's referring true. to. Not, mm. not, I know I often ask really hard questions, no, it's fine, but it's yeah. that question really. Yeah. Um, yeah, it didn't happen in a way yet, if you like. So it, it, it's really, it's kind of straight, pho I mean, yeah, photographs of um, bedrooms or um, buildings from the outside. So it didn't have that kind of possible. The same, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Just one more person there. Somebody there. I was just thinking, wondering, you know, of the four elements people living in direct, I'm sure there are other artists that are working that are. There are, like, Anthony is working. On um, similar thing that there are a similar subject. Then there are I know. Of, um, Do you mean you mean uh, asylum seekers themselves? Yes, yes, right? Oh yes, sorry, I apologise. I'm a bit tired now. I'm not sure about uh, this country. There's an interesting project in Denmark. But she's not yeah. asylum seeker. Yeah. Oh no, I don't. Yeah. I think that was the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't okay, think okay. so. Now there would be. Okay, I didn't come across one person. Um, we'll say his name from Sligo, um, but he is a painter, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah but he, yeah. he he doesn't reflect on direct provision, if yeah, you like. Well, he yeah, paints yeah, yeah. Uh, beautiful paintings, uh, which I, I recently got in touch with him. I would like to meet him, kind of see if there's any, you know, yeah, yeah. room for collaboration, whichever, it doesn't matter. But yeah, I, I, I don't know really, yeah. I mean, you can argue that, yeah. There's a curatorial project emerging in <coughs> Denmark and Copenhagen from uh, colleagues with Tom Olaf Nielsen's running it called Trampoline House and <coughs> her next project is actually to identify across Europe um, migrant artists who either live in or being directly in the system who have experienced that. So I, I think it's a really interesting question and it's yeah. an important one yeah. to kind of find out. Yeah. And there is as well, the, so it's a question of multiculturalism which is linked with the asylum seeker uh, issues, you know, yeah. which is a wider question again, you know. Multiculturalism. Multiculturalism, yeah. because, I mean, the people who were with you in the asylum, I suppose they are from different mm. cultures. Absolutely. So basically, you were, uh, you know, this problem of the <coughs> asylum seekers is really linked with multiculturalism, and how multiculturalism is viewed in Ireland by the population, how is centered on the relationship between the different cultures, you know, and what are the common points that you can find in uh, their humanity and yeah. how they can bring that together. Uh -huh. So I don't know, can I ask a question? And I don't know if it's quite a, a great question to sort of finish up on or anything, mm -hmm. but uh, have you had any difficulty in actually getting the work out there in the public? Mm -hmm. Have you had faced any resistance? Mm -hmm. Um, from the art world, say. Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I used, to, I mean, this first time when I said this. Yeah. 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 No, it's important. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. kind of, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yes, I did. I mean, yeah. kind of uh, all the time. Like, in a way, let's be just honest. So, let's see how, how has the majority of asylum market been created? It's been created with really the help of, you know, my, my, my wife really, family and uh, pack lunch, uh, cheap bus ticket to go to the place, take the photos and come back the same day, over the period of a couple of years. So that's how it's been created really. Uh, no Arts Council funding, right? Or, um, like I did get Create Grant back in 2011 to um, start with, but I didn't, I didn't, yeah. you see, and this is another thing, I didn't follow on that because 
you know, there's no, I didn't find or didn't come across a organization that can um, support the work that I do so that we can make the joint application and maybe get mm. some money, right? So, yeah, it's a challenge. But then also, uh, I think it's very important to realize that, you know, you can't really wait for Arts Council money. You just have to make it work. And uh, um, um, it's important that it's made, really. Um, and then, you know, uh, just kind of, yeah. So, so that's the, and, and that's one thing. And the second thing is, um, um, in terms of um, people have asked me, asked for Galway, like uh, where is going to be shown next, and just nowhere really. I, you know, so um, 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 in Dublin, for example, like I don't know a place where I can even try to apply, right, uh, or to propose uh, other places as well. Now, so, but that's again the struggle, so we'll find a way, really. I mean, it's fine, you know, it's, 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 I'm really happy it's here now, so it's just been great, and I really love working in, in, in this kind of um, setting, it really was ple uh, just a pleasure. Yeah. I think I'm not fully thankful. Yes. <laughs>